If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49, we'll read just three verses this morning, verses 13 through 15. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we uh, come before you with hearts full, with much to be grateful for. We want to thank you, first of all, for the rain that you've blessed our area with. We've prayed and prayed and called out to you and you've answered and we don't want to forget the blessing that that is and and so we thank you, Father, for that. We continue to ask that you'd send more. Uh, Thank you for your sovereign goodness to us. Lord, we also want to thank you for the new life that you've brought to our church in the last several years and uh, these youngsters that have each uh, an individual personality and individual gifts and talents and and tendencies and uh, each one of us are, are just such a joy and each one bears your image. And so Father, we, we praise you for who you are and the manifold ways that your perfections are displayed in the face of these little ones. Lord, we're also mindful that it's a huge stewardship and responsibility for the parents, for our church, that uh, it's a difficult task to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in this day and age, that it puts strain on a marriage, that it puts strain financially on a family, that it puts strain spiritually on individuals, that it's exhausting, that it's tiring, and we just need you, Father. We need your help. We need your wisdom because the situation into which these children are growing up is different in ways that we can't see from the way that we were raised and the things that we faced when we were children. And Lord, they need wise guides. They need loving parents and loving, uh, a loving church family. And so I pray that you would empower us to be that very thing. Lord, we're grateful for Grace House Ministries and and the uh, impact that they're having in our community even after the short time that they've been here in the city of Mineral Wells. We thank you for Options Clinic, Grace House Pregnancy Resource Center, and Pure Truth, uh, their education arm. And Lord, I pray that this baby bottle campaign that we are uh, joining with other churches to undertake Uh, will bless them with the funds that they need to continue to serve 
And Lord, I pray that you would raise up many more people to uh, assist that ministry in serving the vulnerable families of the city of Mineral Wells. Lord, we pray finally for those who are, for, for whom this day is bittersweet. They've said goodbye to their mom, or uh, they've wanted to be a mom and they're not a mom, or their children are uh, causing grief. And, and Lord, we know that a day like today is hard for these folks. And so I ask that you would be the God that you say you are in the verses we just read and comfort those who need comfort. Lord, I pray that you'd open up your word to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the value of motherhood? The way you answer that question is going to depend a lot on your situation, isn't it? I mean, if you're 17 and your mom just informed you that she wants you to empty the dishwasher, clean your room, and mow the lawn at 8.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning, the value that you place on motherhood is probably going to be different from the value that maybe your older sibling places on motherhood. The, the sibling who's alone in a college dorm room with nothing but her books and maybe a couple of Pop-Tarts. If you're a mom and you think about your life, you probably have at times felt as though the value of your uh, motherhood, the value that you're bringing is not very valuable at all, I'm sure. But when you think about your own mother's life, who passed away two years ago, the value of motherhood seems more or less priceless. Of course, if you're a curious reporter on a slow news day, you might be tempted to answer that question in economic terms, as many have done. In fact, that's what they have attempted to do in recent years, to take the concept of motherhood and boil it down to economic value. According to salary.com, some of you have probably read this statistic, uh, the value of a mom, if stay-at-home mom happens to be her full-time job, is a whopping $184,820. So, go mom. However, Cameron Huddleston, writing for GoBankingRates.com, disagrees. Her own lengthy calculations understand the economic value of motherhood at just under $20,000 per year. Yikes. Uh, projecting, maybe. I don't know. Other writers noticing the wide discrepancy between the two commonly cited figures have weighed in with their own two cents about the relative economic value of everything that moms do between tucking in the little ones and cooking and cleaning and providing psychological support, caring for scrapes and bruises and everything else. Everyone, of course, is quick to clarify that you just can't put a price tag on moms. From a biblical perspective, though, what is the value of motherhood? You won't be surprised to learn that in the pages of the Bible, Mothers are treasured much more intensely than they often are in our world. If I could sum it up, I would say that according to the Bible, the value of motherhood is this. Mothers, as mothers, display the image of God. Mothers, as mothers, display the image of God himself. You say, okay, that sounds great, but what does that mean? 
Well, according to the very first chapter of the Bible, we're told that incredibly God himself decided at the very beginning that he would make from nothing a creature designed to represent him in the world, to bear his image, to display his likeness to all the other creatures in existence, to cultivate and keep the earth, to have dominion over all the birds and the beasts and the plants and fill the earth with the glory and the splendor and the wonder of the Lord. We're told in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may not appreciate just how radical that statement would have been in the ancient Near East. Ancient Near Eastern cultures were unanimous in their view that human beings like you and me were the product of the violent, perverse, and even unintentional acts of capricious and changeful gods. It was normal to believe that the average human was worth little more than rubbish, a nameless slave. And if you were born a woman, it was even worse. And it was into this terrifying cultural milieu that Moses spoke this refreshing divine truth. You, each of you, is made in the image of God, not just the rich and the powerful, not just the mighty and the strong, not just the kings and the warriors, not just the men, everybody. If you're a human, if you're a woman, if you're a mother, you bear the divine stamp, the image of God himself, not perfectly, not exhaustively, but nevertheless, that is the essence, mom, of who you are. And it seems to me that according to the Bible, there are at least four things that mothers do that display the image of God and and remind us of his wonderful perfection. So let's just consider them one by one this morning. First of all, when mothers welcome new life, they display the image of God. When mothers welcome new life, they display the image of God. Consider the very next thing that Moses tells us in the Bible's opening chapter, Genesis chapter 1. If you're familiar with that passage, you know he says, make a, uh, let us make man, male and female, in our image. And then immediately in the next verse, he tells us, and God blessed them, the man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have a lot of babies. But what does that tell us? It tells us that Part of the exercise of the image of God is in the working out of this blessing. And by the way, it is a blessing. Yes, it's a command, but that command is itself a blessing. Later in the book of Genesis, Adam names his wife. Now, you you, you might find that a little bit chauvinistic, ladies, but I think most husbands who love their wives come up with some kind of pet name for them. And Adam does that in the book of Genesis. He calls her Eve, Chava. Life, because she was the mother of all living. The very first man recognized that his wife's role as mother was a deeply meaningful part of who she was. And I would submit to you that as the mother of all living, she reflected the creational, life-giving nature of our good God. Now, I realize that not everyone in this room is a mother. I understand I'm not a mother. And if you're not one, I'm not telling you that you are less than the image of God. Jesus was a single man, and he was the perfect image of the Father. What I'm saying, though, is that when we see a mother, 
welcome new life. We are getting a glimpse of one of God's perfections. Think about our God. He's perfect in every possible way. From eternity past, he has enjoyed the infinite radiance of his glory through the inexhaustible, infinite, intimate fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is supremely wonderful, and he could never grow tired with his glories and his perfections. He, he was eternally having fellowship with himself. And yet, in his perfection, he desired to share that glory with other beings. So he created these innumerable, vast armies of angels that would behold his glory and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he, uh, and then he creates this vast universe and an earth teeming with life. Every atom, every cell hums with the revelation of his power and goodness. And all beings behold the glory of God in the abundance of creation. But then God wanted to share his abundance, share himself with living beings who were in some profound sense like him, so he created man and woman, and the first priority he gave them was to multiply themselves, because the more image bearers, the more beings could enjoy him as he has enjoyed himself from eternity past. Now, I know that that's kind of a mind-blowing thing, but when mothers display, or when mothers welcome new life, they display the image of God. God wants his joy to be the joy of the many. And so he has an inclination toward life, toward being, toward existence, so that his glories might be shared. And when a woman bears a new image bearer, we're reminded of God's desire for life. That's who he is. Now think about how that compares with the priorities of the culture of the world. We're made to think in our world today that resources are scarce that the largesse and the abundance of creation is running out, and therefore we must steel ourselves against this impulse to have more children, right? That our children are voracious consumers of an ever-shrinking pile of food and land and air, rather than creative caretakers of God's abundant creation. Totalitarian governments have taken the technology and the creativity of individuals who happen to have been born... And they use those things to try to make it so that other people are not born. If we have been paying attention to the character of our God as a lover of life, as a creator of life, we would not be surprised to have learned that the cultures that have had the greatest success in, in curtailing the birth rate are also the cultures that are decaying and rotting out from the inside out. Watch what happens in places like China. They aren't headed for world domination. Their population is aging, and soon they won't be able to support that aging population. Why is that? Because they are going against the character of God in the way that they've structured their society. And on an individual level, we run the risk of forgetting this as well. It's been a very long time, but I remember having the thought as a teenager on a few different occasions. Maybe you have had this thought, like I did years and years ago. It would be better for me not to exist than to exist. But that's not, say, that's not God's thoughts towards us. That's actually the devil's thoughts. Satan is the one who destroys. God loves life. 
Satan is the one that murders. God makes alive. And so, folks, when mothers welcome new life into the world, they display the glory and the splendor and the image of our God as a God who loves life, a God who loves to show and display his largesse with his creatures. When mothers welcome new life, they remind us of the image of God. Secondly, when, when mothers make a home, they display the image of God. When mothers make a home, they display the image of God. Multiple times in Scripture, God's care for us is compared to a mother bird caring for her young, uh, sheltering those chicks. Consider the 91st Psalm. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Do you see the image in your mind's eye? God overshadowing his people like a mother bird overshadows and protects her young. Or Deuteronomy 32, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided Israel. Later, Jesus picks up on the same imagery in Matthew 23. He is standing and looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he laments for the city of Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. The image is clear. A mother bird guards and shelters her little chicks from the wind and the rain and the cold. I've, I've never raised chickens or seen birds do this, but some of you perhaps have seen this behavior out in your own uh, experience. But what is that mother hen doing? She is providing under her wings a place of safety, a place of warmth, a place of peace and calm. There's another word for that. It's a home. It's a home. See, there's a difference that we all understand between a house or an apartment and a home. You've felt that. A house is just a building, right? A home is a place where you belong. It's not just about physical safety. It's a refuge, a place where you don't have to have your wits about you. You can just be who you are. Let me tell you something. There is no one, no one who has the capability to make a home like a mother. My kids and I sometimes laugh about this. When mom's out of town, they get to school, they, uh, the house gets locked up at night for safety, calories are consumed in some fashion, <laughs> but none of us really feels at home until mom's home. It's a lot of pressure on my wife, but that's just the way it is in our family because she makes the home. If you're a mom, you make a home. Whether you work outside the home or not, you set the tone in your house. This is where that phrase comes from, right? If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Why is that? That's because God made her that way. She sets the tone. And if mom, you can feel it, the disturbance in the force. If something's wrong from her perspective, then everybody knows that. It, they pay attention. Paul mentions this explicitly to both Timothy and Titus. He reminds these men, he says, encourage the young women in the church to give attention and effort to the making of the home. I don't think Paul was saying you can't work outside the home. I think he was saying that there's something a wife or a mother can do that dad can't do. They make a home. Mom, when you create a home for your kids, you're displaying something wonderful about the character and the goodness of God. Sometimes we portray God as aloof or uninterested, like he doesn't care about us. Sometimes we 
think that he, all, all, he wants us all to feel a little uneasy, like he might kind of smack us, you know, if we do something that we're not supposed to do. But that's not the way the Bible portrays our God. God doesn't just offer forgiveness and freedom from punishment. He goes way further than that. He actually invites us into his family. Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray, Our Father. That is radical. To pray to the Creator God, the Commander of the armies of heaven, the King seated on a heavenly chariot, the one whose voice is like thunder, and yet we address him as our Father. That's a level of closeness and belonging and safety and intimacy that we just don't deserve. By the way, the image of that mother bird sheltering her young implies a cost to her. It implies a risk that she's taking. It's very costly for mom to provide a home. And of course, this is a reflection of the price paid by our Savior to prepare a place for us. The torrent of God's wrath is poured on us. The powers of hell are hurled at us, but Christ covers us so that he absorbs the wrath of the Father, so that he absorbs the fury of hell, and we are safe under his wing. Moms, when you pay the high price to instill in your children a sense of home, you are reflecting the image of God. One day we will be home with the Lord. At the end of the, the, the world, the, the home of God will come down and be on a new earth with men. I can't think of anyone who models that better, better than mothers. And yet consider the values of our world. There's a lot of pressure from the government, from uh, society, from culture, from men, for moms to feel that if they don't go out and earn money, that they aren't valuable. It's your career that makes a mark on the world. That's the way we live. But if you choose to be a stay-at-home mom or you leave aside your professional potential because you're dividing your time between work and children, or your heart, your focus is more on your role as a mom than it is on your role as a professional, then don't ever regret that. That's a costly choice, but it's a wise choice because the impact you'll have on your kids, your family, your church, your community is something no professional role can rival. There are a lot of moms out there who are making do with less money because they wanted to focus on their role as a mom. A lot of moms out there who are working entry-level jobs instead of climbing the ladder and breaking the glass ceiling because the years they spent focusing on their role as a mom. A lot of moms out there who get passed over for a promotion because they prioritize their kids over the 24-7 availability expected in the workplace. You get what I'm saying. It's because they're choosing something better. They're choosing to display the the, the, the desire that they have to display the image of God. And I just want to say that they've made a good choice, a choice I respect, a choice they won't regret, a choice that displays God's image. A couple months ago, we, as a family, started watching Leave it to Beaver. And uh, it had been a long, long time since I'd seen that show, and it sure seems like June Cleaver's life is a thing of the past. And I think for a lot of people, the June Cleaver life seems like a waste but it's because we have distorted values. It's because we've allowed the values of the world to infiltrate the values of the word. And if you're devoting, what I'm saying is, if you're devoting your energies to creating a home, don't ever feel like you're wasting your life. And don't ever, ever make fun of someone who's chosen to live that life. 
It takes great sacrifice, personal risk, if you consider the opportunity cost, the financial dependence it creates between husband and wife. It's, it's a godly choice. So let's be a church family that cheers for our moms, whether they're working outside the home or not. Let's be a church family that recognizes moms can do something no one else can do. They make a home, and when they do that, they display the glory and the image of our God who welcomes us into his home. Mothers display the image of God when they welcome new life, when they make a home. Notice in the third place, when mothers teach, they display the image of God. When mothers teach, they display the image of God. Have you ever carefully read the book of Proverbs? Typically, we go to Proverbs and we quote individual verses just more or less at random as they seem to apply to our specific situation. But if you if you understand that it's more than that, that it's a body of instruction communicated within the context of a covenant relationship, then, then you come away with a totally different understanding of what that book teaches us. You see, most of it was written by King Solomon, who was uh, in covenant relationship with God, and it's composed for Solomon's very own son, the royal heir. That makes all the difference. It's covenant instruction. It's divinely inspired reflection. It's passed down to another generation of people who are going to have a covenant relationship with the Lord God. And, 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 and so here's what Proverbs often encourages us to do. Proverbs 1.8. Hear my son. There's a relationship there. Your father's instruction. And then listen. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Clearly, this is a book written primarily to a young man in the royal household, a young man on the verge of adulthood, a young man who was probably very strong, very skilled, somebody who was ready to launch out into the wide world. Shouldn't he be hanging out with his dad? Shouldn't he be hanging out with the commanders of the army? And yet, Solomon tells him, forsake not the teaching of your mother. Again, in 620, he repeats the same command, forsake not your mother's teaching. In chapter 31, the very last chapter of the book, we're told that the last word goes to a mother. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. This is what mothers do. They teach even the young men in their household, ready though they may be to take on the world, never outgrow a lesson from mom. Young Timothy benefited from this. His grandmother and his mother taught him about the fear of the Lord. They taught him about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His dad was gone, but they taught him to love Jesus without looking back. Mothers teach. That's what they do. They're always doing it. Sometimes verbally, sometimes it's just a look. And, and you know, uh, because you've had those looks from your mom, that's all it takes. She just kind of raises an eyebrow and you get in line, right? Sometimes it's just a look, but the lesson's typically right there, down on the bottom shelf, easy to grasp, easy to take with you, and I can't tell you how many times I've tried to communicate something to my children, and I'm waxing eloquent, and I see the eyelids kind of drooping a little bit, and they're not really paying attention, and mom has something to say, and just real simply, real incisively, she communicates directly to their heart. Moms teach, and they do it in a way that displays the image of God, because God is a teacher. He patiently instructs. Just think about God's love of the spoken and written word. Uh, he speaks his instruction to Moses, and then he tells Moses, write it down in a book, and then Joshua comes along, and he's adding more to that book. This is something God wants. 
The same goes for the prophets and the writers of the Old Testament until finally we're introduced to the world's greatest teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about Jesus' skill as a teacher. He's more than a teacher, but he's a master teacher. His delightful parables, the pauses in his discourse. How many times the gospel writers tell, tell us that Jesus stopped and he looked him in the eye and he said, Jesus was a master communicator. We, even those who reject Jesus as the son of God, they recognize the beauty and the mastery of the story of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the lost son. The son of God is a teacher because God's character is to teach. Of course, now that Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father, he sent another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, part of what he does is he teaches us. Uh, he takes everything that Jesus has said and he explains it and expounds on it. And he led and moved the apostles to write it down in the pages of the New Testament. And that same Holy Spirit is in us, in you, church, teaching and reminding us of what the Word of God teaches. And when mothers teach, that's the God that they remind us of. Sadly, we live in a world that's drowning out the voice of our mothers. Have you noticed this? People with a microphone and some video editing skills have more clout than our own mothers or our mothers in Israel, the mothers here in the church of Jesus Christ, the Deborahs and Tabithas of the church. Popular culture screams at us to forsake the voice of our father and to forget the teaching of our mother. And I just want to say, some of you would be in a lot better place if you would remember the voice of your mother. This is God's design. Because when mothers teach, they display the image of God. Mothers display God's glory when they welcome new life, when they create a home, when they teach. But in the fourth place, when mothers refuse to give up, they display the image of God. When mothers refuse to give up, they display the image of God. Maybe the most tender comparison between mothers and our good God appears in the 49th chapter of Isaiah, the passage that we read just a few moments ago. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. The, the nursing, nurturing mom is a reflection of the goodness of our God. I don't think the rest of us really comprehend the depth of meaning in this illustration. What does it convey? It conveys compassion and care, to say the least. It conveys intimate knowledge, and, and, and maybe more than anything, it, it conveys a persistent, enduring, never-stopping, relentless love. I mean, think about a nursing mother. She's, some of you don't have to think about it because you're, you're living it right now. But what does she do? She stops for 30 or 40 minutes every few hours, all day, every day, several times a night, just to nourish her child. Every child is different, but she knows him intimately. She knows the way he likes to rest in her arms. She knows his cries. She knows when something's wrong. She knows when he's content. Evening comes. She bathes him, she combs his little hairs, clothes him with a fresh diaper and soft pajamas. She dims the light and softly sings as she feeds him one more time before darkness falls. But you know what happens. He hasn't learned to sleep at night. In fact, that's when he wants to play. That's when he wants to be awake. 
He hasn't learned to trust, to be content. So after eating, he rouses, he fusses, he begins to cry. He's gotten everything he needs. He's eaten plenty, he's clean, he's tired, he's ready to fall asleep, but he's just not content. But his mother knows what he needs, he needs to sleep. So what does she do? She courageously lays him in his crib, and she turns off the light, and she gingerly walks away. And in that moment, what is baby thinking? I'm not a baby psychologist, but I can just guess, all right? What is he thinking? You can tell by the cry. He is mad as a hornet. He's sad. Mom's gone. Mom's forgotten me. I'm wide awake, and where is my mother? So he just lets it rip, and his face gets red, and and he's just wailing. But mom didn't forget him. Where's mom? She's probably, if if she has a baby monitor, maybe in the other room. But if not, she's, she's standing right on the other side of the door, checking the clock to see how long it's been. Two minutes. He's not going to die, even though it feels like two hours. He just needs to sleep. She's going over the reasons he might have to cry and fuss. No, he, he's eaten. He's, he's been changed. I, I laid him in bed just the way he likes to fall asleep. There's nothing wrong. He just needs to sleep. She waits a little longer. She comes back in the room. She calms him down. She soothes him, lays him in the bed again, and the cycle repeats until the baby learns to trust and rest and remember that mom comes back. Now, you know where I'm going with this, because we're often like that little baby, aren't we? We're often like that confused child. We don't realize the depth of God's loyal love. We walk through a valley, we face an evil circumstance, we endure the consequences of our own sin, and we think, well, I guess God's forgotten me. I guess he's given up on me today. I guess that's it for me. I guess it's over. Can you imagine a loving mother saying, you know what, I I just don't want this baby anymore? I mean, sure, it happens, sadly. But what is unconscionable in the case of a mother is unthinkable in the case of our good God. He would never do that. God's loyal love isn't swayed or stymied by our angry cries, our failures, our weaknesses. He doesn't give up on those who are his. For most people who've had children, the kids grow up, they start making their own choices. Some of those kids choose a path that grieves mom and dad. For some of you, that makes today a bittersweet day, but I doubt you've had the thought, I'm done. I'm just going to give up and forget that I had a kid. No. And why is that? Because God gave that motherly impulse so that we might have a faint glimpse of the kind of faithfulness and loyalty that God exhibits toward his precious children. God doesn't give up. And I want to tell you today that if you're here and you're breathing oxygen, that God's mercy hasn't run out for you. That God's loyal love is still available to you. You're like that infinite you, infant. You say, I, don't, I just don't see it. I, I, you just can't believe that God hasn't left you behind. And I want you to know today that God hasn't left you behind. You're still here. There's still time. You're still breathing. You're still alive. And he, he, it's like he's right outside the door. He's allowing the pain. He's allowing the difficulty. He's allowing those 
those trials in your life because he knows what's best and maybe what he's doing is he's encouraging you and disciplining you and leading you to come back to him and trust him because he knows what he's doing. See, this is how moms are. When they refuse to give up, that displays the glory and the goodness and the wonder and the image of God. You say, you know what, Jake, Uh, that's pretty cool. I've been discouraged as a mom, and some of the things you said today made me feel a little bit better about being a mom, and, and that's great. And, and I'm, I'm glad for that. I hope you have a wonderful day if you're a mother. Uh, I, I hope everybody actually has a great day. <laughs> but actually, my goal today isn't to make all the moms feel happy about who they are. That's a nice byproduct, maybe. But that's not why we're here this morning. My goal is to remind you of who God is so that you can find happiness in God. To enjoy God. To rest and rejoice in His character. You know, it's such a blessing to have a mother. To have mothers in our church family, women who welcome new life, who make a home, who teach us, who refuse to give up. But in all the ways that they bless us, our main takeaway ought to be that whatever moms do well in their calling as moms, whatever moms do in obedience to the direction of the Father, they are displaying the glories and the perfections and the goodness of the God who made us and wants to have a relationship with us. And I want you to be happy in God. That's our goal today. Isn't God truly wonderful? Isn't he wise? Isn't he patient and compassionate? Isn't he faithful and true? Then let's remember that when we're tempted to despair, to give up, to mope around and focus on our disappointments instead of the blessings that he's poured out in our lives, that he's a good God. And when we see moms doing what God calls them to do, it's just like a little light goes on and that reminds us, you know what, this is who God is. God doesn't give up on me. God's faithful. God's been teaching me some things. God wants me to be here. He wants me to be alive. He wants me to share life with him in Christ. Isn't God good? Let's rest in the character of our good God. Would you pray with me now? Father, I just want to thank you for uh, another chance that we have today to serve and love and worship you. And to to remember who you are, to remember your goodness and your perfections. And Lord, we want to thank you for the example that we have in the moms in our church. That in the way that they go about the business of being moms, they remind us of your perfections and your goodness and your glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, just direct our affections toward you so that we might find our happiness and joy in who you are. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me now? And uh, let's just take a moment to enjoy our good God and to respond to the word of God in song. Let's sing together.